Welcome to the Microbiology Lab Pod. My name is Johan Bengtsson Palme and I am an assistant professor at the Chalmers University of Technology. We just recently moved here and we're going to come back to that very shortly. But first, I want to say that today is the 12th of September and today we will talk about antibiotic resistance in the environment. And we have an excellent crew on today, and I'm just going to present them from the left of me here, uh, which is nice because this is the first pod in a very long time that we can do. Or actually, it is the first pod we do in person. So that's a break from previously. Uh, we have a lot, few other things that have also changed, but let's first get into who's here. So I'm going to start to my left, and to my left is Marcus Venne, who is a bioinformatician in the group. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Yvonne. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you for asking. How are you? I'm decently well. Uh Uh, I have just recovered from another one of the 2500 colds that are circulating circulating in early September. So, but I'm decently well, thank you. We also have uh, a new master student in the group, uh, Agatha Marci. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. So I hope that we can come back to talk, uh, talking a little bit about uh, what you're going to do in the group as well. Of course. But let's continue around the table. Uh, right in front of me we have a postdoc in the lab, Anna Abramova. How are you doing? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. And then we have also a newcomer on the pod, uh, a relatively new PhD student in the lab, Miriam Dunboy. Hello Miriam. Hello Miriam. And you're also good? Uh, yeah, I'm very good. This is my first podcast, so very excited. Yeah, this will be interesting. We have a new location and a partially new crew. And then lastly, but of course not least, uh, to my right I have Emil Burman, a PhD student in the lab. Hello Emil. Hello Johan, how are you doing? I'm doing yeah. decently, as I said. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Great. Uh, so, as I said before, there's a lot of things that have changed since the last pod we recorded, which is I think a year ago or something like that. Um, So the first thing is that we're no longer sitting at home and recording, we're now recording in my office. And my office nowadays is located at Chalmers University of Technology. So that's the other big thing that I've changed in the past few months, uh, that the entire group has moved from the Sahlgrenska Academy uh, to Chalmers University of Technology and the Department of Biotechnology and Biological Research, something like that, it's a long name. more specifically at the divisions of systems and synthetic biology. And at this point, most of the lab has been able to move here. Uh, We're still struggling a a little bit with some of the wet lab work. Miriam and Emil, do you want to tell us what we're waiting for? Stuff. (laughs) Just stuff. (laughs) A bunch of stuff. (laughs) Mostly it's like equipment and stuff that hasn't really been delivered yet. And we can't really, you know, move our entire... uh, work here until uh, everything is up and done for but from what I've seen so far it's looking very nice yeah I mean what we're basically missing is the uh, BSL 2 yeah uh, that minor lab. minor I mean, little thing you know class 2 stuff yeah exactly so I mean that it's it's like we could potentially do work but we couldn't work with all the bacteria we're normally working with so you and Miriam are still stuck up at the hill for some time right yeah so that's nice, but we, it also means that, uh, or not only that means, circumstances in general means that we will still be affiliated with the Department of Infectious Diseases for quite some time to come. So we are now a shared group, 
uh, with most of our business at Chalmers University Technology and some up at the Sahlgrenska Academy at the University of Gothenburg. So that's nice. Agatha and uh, Emilia, I hope that we will have the opportunity to come back to your project and discuss them more in detail. Um, but maybe you just want to say like, a few words of what you're working on. Uh, I'll actually start with you, Agatha. What are you going to, going to work with in the lab? I mean, you've only been here for a week, but... <laughs> yeah, uh, I will be working on my master thesis project. And it's going to be only bioinformatics, so no wet lab. And I will be implementing a bioinformatic approach to see if there are differences between the genomes of host-associated and non-host-associated opportunistic pathogens. Uh, specifically epsilon one serogenosa, and then I try to characterize these genes and so on and so forth. Yeah, thank you. And you, Miriam, you have been working for a little bit more than half a year now yeah. in the group, yeah. so uh, please tell us a little bit of what, what you're doing. Uh, so my project is more focused on the human gut microbiome and especially the microbial interactions that happens in these specific uh, communities of bacteria. Uh, so right now I'm actually trying to set up a gastric uh, synthetic community. Very much in the beginning, but uh, we're getting there. So. Did you get any inspiration from the ISMI conference? I did, yeah. It was really fun actually. I had a, I had a great time going around there and we're very happy that I could uh, come with as well. Uh, so. Because I remember I was a bit surprised about how much work there was on synthetic communities um, in comparison to what it has been in my past ISB conferences, which is eight years ago last time. So <laughs> things are apparently moving forward in this field. So great, good summary. So with the EDAR conference, the conference on the environmental dimensions of antibiotic resistance coming up in Gothenburg in just two weeks, uh, I think it could be suitable to dedicate this podcast to antibiotic resistance in the environment. And we have two really, really interesting papers to look at. Uh, one about resistance in what most people would deem a relatively pristine environment, and one uh, about what most people would agree on is a relatively polluted environment. Uh, so this is an interesting contrast. And uh, I hope that this could serve as a little bit of a, a warm-up to the conference later this month. We will start in the relatively pristine end, uh, so we will go to Antarctica and we will talk about the paper which made a bit of a big splash in the news in May, I think it was. Um, and it's from the University of Chile and it was published in Science of the Total Environment. And uh, Marcus and Anna, do you want to tell us a little bit more about this paper? Yes, Johan, I can begin. So the paper is called The Highly Diverse Antarctic Peninsula Soil Microbiota as a Source of Novel Resistance Genes. <clears throat> and as we all know, antibiotic resistance is a current and evolving problem in uh, the world today. Uh, but the big question is how do we tackle it? So the authors of this paper suggest a One Health approach where you look at the uh, when you look at the, as they say, health of the humans combined with the health of the environment. Um, and they say that there is a system of uh, say soil and agricultural environments have been fairly well studied, uh, but less is known about the system of more distant and extreme ecosystems, uh, as in this case, the Antarctic soil. Uh, so there are, I would say, three uh, 
main points or main tracks of this paper. The first one is to characterize the resistome of this non-human impacted environment, if it actually is a non-human impacted environment. I think that can be discussed. Uh, the second point is to identify new arcs. Uh, and the third point is to compare human and non-human impacted environments and see how the human impact of this environment affects the resistome. So you, you could say that the Antarctic, uh, the An Antarctic Peninsula is fairly untouched by humans. Uh, but there are research stations which are more directly impacted by humans. So by comparing the area which is, you could say, more pristine or less humanly impacted of the Antarctic, you can compare that to the environment surrounding the research stations. And then you can see, does human presence affect the soil microbiome and the resistome? And to do this, they combined a culturing approach uh, together with 16SR RNA sequencing as well as metagenomics. And Anna will give us some examples of that. Yeah, so uh, as Marcus already mentioned, the authors of this paper collected soil samples from different locations, uh, ones which were affected by human activity and uh, the other ones that were relatively um, unaffected or located in the places with restricted human access. And first of all, what they did, they cultured bacteria on several different uh, medias and then extracted isolates and tested their resistance to 15 different types of antibiotics. Um, what was surprising is that the bacteria uh, that grew on these plates were resistant to 13 of 15 antibiotics and only meropenem and tigacyclin did kill all of the bacteria. And the authors found this quite surprising because um, meropenem belongs to a group of carbapenemases, which are rather common in Antarctic soils. Um, I think what was also very interesting, they also mentioned it, is that um, pseudomonas actually resist uh, carbapenemases by having efflux pumps. And the authors mentioned that the identifying mi microbes also have a whole array of efflux pumps, but despite that, they cannot um, they cannot survive meropenem. Uh, so a suggested um, explanation for this could be a difference in substrate specificity of those mechanisms. And uh, in addition to that, what was also very interesting is that a lot of those isolates were resistant to cholestine. This is a last resort antibiotics uh, for Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections. But despite that, just genomic analysis failed to identify any known genes accounting for these resistance levels, which was quite interesting. Yes, I, I, was, um, <clears throat> I was thinking that we know that there are a lot of um, menoprenum resistance in Arctic soils. But I was thinking here we are taking bacteria from soils which are a few degrees. They can usually go below zero, but when they sampled them, they were a few degrees, one or two degrees. And then they take a subset, because we, we can assume that there are thousands of individual strains or tens of thousands of individual strains. So they take 229 of these strains, which are able to grow on a plate at 10 degrees. So 
I wonder if uh, perhaps the reasons why some of these, let's say there is so little uh, menoprenum resistance is because some of these resistance mechanisms might be a bit temperature sensitive or perhaps are not evolved to be able to deal with uh, temperatures as high as 10 degrees. I don't know. <laughs> Emil, you dealt a lot with temperature. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I agree. Uh, I I think that this is perhaps something that is intrinsic to the to the bacteria that are growing itself. Like, I mean, we know, uh, and, and as you, you mentioned, that they were working with Pseudomonas, uh, or that this was at least one of the last uh, last resort um, antibiotics against Pseudomonas aeruginosa. If it is the case that what a, that the bacteria that they grew in this uh, from this isolates is pseudomonas, then I can definitely see that this is just perhaps a temperature uh, dependent uh, translation uh, that is perhaps not as active because to my understanding at least there isn't that much colistin just residing in pristine soils. So where would this arise from? Why would they harbor these genes? Could it be cross resistance to something else. Sure. Perhaps. What would that be? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a. Uh, it's very weird. Uh, if you were to, uh, because this is sort of like maybe perhaps leads me to this question that uh, that you kind of posited that this wasn't uh, any known um, resistance origin of colistin uh, were found when you when you dug through these genomes or when the authors dug through these genomes. My understanding is that one of the um, most common uh, resistance genes against colistin is MCR, uh, this mobile colistin resistance genes. Um, and maybe this is just an intrinsic resistance factor instead of one of these superabundant that is uh, replicating itself all over the you know, big farms and stuff like that. Uh, and how would you discover that? I, I feel like when it comes to colistin, that's, I mean, it's probably quite likely that we're talking about some type of intrinsic resistance mm, here, yeah. or, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I haven't actually had time to look this up, but they write somewhere that the most common uh, resistance to colistin is mediated through the MCR gene, yeah. which I am not sure that's true, because, okay. I mean, that's... Uh, the gene itself was discovered less than 10 years ago and the deal with the gene was that it was mobile. Mm. Not that, that this is the only colistin resistance mechanism we know of, it's like this is the only mobile mechanism we know of. And my understanding is that, and I have to say that I'm absolutely not an expert in colistin resistance, but my understanding is that there are other chromosomally encoded mechanisms and I don't see any reason why these bacteria wouldn't carry one of those mechanisms. So I, I, I'm not sure I'm not, not sure I'm not sure to what extent I think this means so much. I mean it all depends on the how how common it is for these colistin genes to mobilize themselves, right? Because I mean this could just be a case and especially if they could discover that uh, that is it, that it is a novel colistin resistance genes. It might just be anchored itself to the to the chromosome, but maybe in one hundred, one thousand, ten thousand years, it is has the ability to local to relocate itself onto um, Mg 
uh, mobile genetic element, and then we will see it more widespread. But then, you know, that is one perhaps, how do we put this? Then we will discover it more because generally one can imagine it is easier to discover uh, mobile genes than it is to discover genes that are anchored within the, the chromosome of the taxa because they would be harboring themselves throughout a larger uh, set of taxa. Well, you basically mean that they would be more wildly distributed yes. and then you would just by chance sample yes, them discover, more often. Yes, yes. That and might be true. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it also depends on what type of environment the selection yeah, process sure, you're working at. Yeah, sure, so. sure, exactly. And also, like, how, how burdensome it is yeah. to actually carry it. But I think one thing that is striking here is that if you look at these multi-resistant isolates, which they broke out separately, I mean, the vast majority of those are pseudomonas. Uh, and pseudomonas is known to be intrinsically resistant or resistant through this large set of multi-drug efflux pumps that it has to be resistant to a wide array, a wide array of different antibiotics. And my understanding of how they define resistance here is not that it's increased sensitivity over the wild type, right? It's that it's able to grow on this antibiotic, which means that a lot of these, in quotation marks, resistant bacteria are basically never treated with that antibiotic in clinical settings because they are normally regarded to be intrinsically resistant, yeah. whatever that means. I mean, it, it might mean, mean that they lack the target, it might mean that they can, they, they already encode a chromosomal resistance mechanism, but, and I, I think that's, actually that's pretty common with pseudomonas. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't treat pseudomonas with tetracycline. Now they don't use tetracycline in this study, but they use tigacycline, mm -hmm. which is actually working on, on pseudomonas though. So, I mean, it's, yeah. 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 It's it's not an entirely dumb selection of antibiotics, but it's it's still notable. I think that they find a lot of pseudomonas because pseudomonas is something you can grow on plates. But it's also something that is very. I mean, the baseline of resistance to pseudomonas is pretty big. I mean, one of the reasons uh, that we observe the resistance uh, of the bacteria in the plates, but we cannot also identify the genes behind, is that what we compare to is a databases of clinically relevant genes. So uh, it could be just the fact that in these remote environments we have a different diversity of microbes carrying different genes which are not yet made into databases. Um, I Although I think there's one, there's one thing there that I would just say to contest that, and that is that they are using a very permissive definition of a resistance gene. Uh, I mean, for for the for the resistance typing. I mean, the looking at the <laughs> bacteria that grow. Of course, I mean, either they are resistant or they are not, and you can't really say that that's a database error. But when it comes to these specific genes, uh, my understanding is that they have used pretty permissive cutoffs to define the resistance gene. Didn't they use, uh, was it RGI or DeepR, which has three types of categorization, which was perfect, strict, and... Yes, and then when you look at how they yeah. classify these in the genomes, mm. they include the loose hits, mm -hmm. uh, which means that they have uh, down to 20% identity. But I still, that still, I mean, because Anna's argument was basically they did not find the resistance genes, potentially because they aren't in our databases. Mm -hmm. 
so it doesn't matter if yeah, they if use it's wider sort of a wider net with larger holes. The, the the conclusion is still we found resistant bacteria, but we did not find the resistance gene. Oh yeah, that argument holds. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes. Okay, but I, the most perhaps surprising finding of this paper, m- maybe only for me, but I saw that uh, what they found also is that proportion of multidrug resistance strains and resistance genes was much higher in non-intervened areas, which was very counterintuitive when you think that anthropogenic pollution in general sil- um, increase antibiotic resistance in the environment. So what do you think about that? I think, as I, as I told you before, and I'm not sure exactly what the anthropogenic impact is here, mm. mm-hmm. because we're discussing, we're talking about a research station in what we would call a fairly pristine environment. And I would assume that they are very careful with what they are letting out in the environment. So they're probably not pumping the raw sewage out um, into I, the water. I wouldn't discount that that's a possibility. <coughs> I read, I read they're, they're constructing a new station, or rebuilding one station, and the sewage is going through UV treatment in order to kill everything. Uh, so, I mean, they could, but basically what this tells us is that the, the presence of the humans here were not enough to infer selection or resistance. Yes. Of course, we did see some differences, uh, but what happened was that the authors looked at microbial diversity. And they saw that the diversity was same in the in the non-impacted and the impacted environments, but the composition of the microbes were different. So somehow the um, humans impacted the microbial composition of the area where they were doing research, and that could be called um, exactly why is not clear. But the authors speculate that I mean, if if they that the main driver of resistance genes, if we do not have anthropogenic impact, is taxonomic composition. So if you change the taxonomic composition, then you will also change the resistance gene composition. So they, uh, uh, one of the major cha- drivers of taxonomic composition is the geochemical properties of the soil. Hmm. pH, uh, I guess temperature has an impact and things like that. So the authors then speculate that the human impact, they had, they had an impact. But that impact was not selection for resistance. That impact was some sort of chemical impact or something like that that changed the comp- taxonomic composition, which in turn changed the resistance genes composition. It's 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 a very strong claim, however, because I mean I feel that I know I haven't exactly dug as thoroughly as I probably uh, need to to answer this exact question that I have now, but. How do we know that this taxonomic shift is due to anthropogenic impact and not just due to different sampling sites, for example? No, but that, that could be uh, the truth. But they have sampled uh, quite a lot of different sites. Mm. And I guess they see this... Uh, not, right. So the thing is, they, what we can say is they see a trend. They see a difference between the non-human impacted and the human impacted. But of course, you can't say that it's because the site was human impacted no. or not. But we can see at least there's a correlation. But we can't say that there's a causation. You can't, cor- you can't argue against the correlation. In the- <laughs> <laughs> you can argue the causation, but not the correlation. Yeah, but I, I mean, you said that they have sampled quite a, quite a large amount of sites. I think it's seven sites in total. Isn't it three versus four? 
I think, so, but I mean, in relation to all the sites very uh, sort of present, I guess, how many research stations are there on the planet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel there's a limit to that, that, that might be the bottleneck. Actually, actually, I think this is one of the things I would criticize the paper for. You, mm. you cannot see on the map they provide which of the, their stations are, or which of the sampling sites would correspond to um, a pristine site and which ones are the research station sites. They have that in the supplementary. Yeah. They have a pretty good table. Yeah, but they could have included that in their first figure with a map. I think that would have been much easier. That's that's the only thing I'm saying. So we were talking about uh, humanized and non-humanized uh, zones, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as I said, I think I intuitively would uh, assume that there was some kind of uh, human-related impact. Would it be a treatment of wastewater and sewage? which uh, perhaps is taken care of, but still um, I assume that there could be some impact. And I think you can see it from their results on ciprofloxacin, which actually showed eightfold increase in humanized zones. So... But that... wasn't that... Uh, wasn't that on the isolate level? Or do yes. I misremember? It was on the isolate level. Yeah. I think it's hard to say. I mean... I, I remember, I remember Anna Jonning, uh, who did uh, sampling of environmental um, places in Sweden for ciprofloxacin resistance, and I mean she fi found ciprofloxacin resistance was high in this kind of la lake that was located basically uphill, so there was no water running into it. It was basically just a um, what do you call it? like a source of water to other places? Of course, you can argue that okay, that could be birds or that could be anything, because it it could. But still, then you, it's hard to make the argument that this has to be anthropogenic pollution just because there's more ciprofloxacin resistance there. I mean, it's it, it's tricky, um, and, and I, I'm let's put it this way: I am not convinced about this. Uh, it's one possible explanation, but I'm not convinced that that's the one explanation. But something, I mean, this is, we have been talking about monitoring mm -hmm. and finding baselines uh, for antibiotic resistance as part of Embark, uh, probably which I think a lot of people here have been involved in somehow, and you want is the coordinator for. Uh, but I think this is pretty interesting when you discuss the baseline, because here, the baseline of antibiotic resistance in the non-human uh, impacted environment is higher than the humanly impacted environment. I just think that's interesting to think about what is a baseline for resistance in relation to what? Just because the, the amount of resistance genes are higher does not mean that we have an impact and it doesn't mean that it is a more um, affected res is that environment which has more resistance genes is that more dangerous in relation to human health is that is that a more risky environment in relation to the human uh, impacted one I, I think I mean I, I think in some sense I think that you're making the argument more complicated than it's necessary because I, I think you could basically say that maybe this is just Maybe this is just not that, that polluted an environment. Or maybe it's all super polluted because they don't really compare anything to anything else, right? I mean, there's no 
independent site where you have like okay this is the amount of bacteria resistant bacteria and the amount of resistance gene you would get in a normal soil they don't even do that comparison uh, but I, I my guess is that the human impact here is fairly little and i think that's what what you see the product of and that's why you see this non-impacted sites are in some sense worse than the impacted site because i don't think the impact here is very significant no i, I think that's what you're looking at i think it's probably quite hard to thoroughly impact a soil a complex soil microbial community from there are so few humans there and a human unless we have effluent sewage which is really contaminated with drugs and things like that. Otherwise, I think it's hard to have a, a substantial impact. I think there's one more thing to it as well. The temperature here is really low compared to most environments we're discussing, which means that if you have anthropogenic impacts from like human feces, these bacteria will not like this environment uh, compared to what you would get in, say, Southern Europe or Central Africa, where you can have an environmental temperature which is not that far from the temperature of the human body. Um, and in this case, you have a, for the most of the year, you have a pretty big difference between the human body and the environmental temperature, which I think could also impact that, actually. So maybe, I mean, even if you have an anthropogenic impact, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be minimized by the environmental conditions. Now I'm totally speculating, of course. I guess to wrap it up, um, I would like to reference back this article published in Swedish News referring to this paper and um, <clears throat> literally saying that there are a lot of superbacteria which were found in Antarctis and it sounds a little bit alarmistic. So what do you think about that? How worried should we be about it? So in my experience... Uh, and we discussed a long time ago about this weird bacteria that are thawing up in the permafrosts. That might be a cause for concern, but what we, the authors have shown here, I, I, I don't think it's that concerning, if I'm completely honest. I think these bacteria exist everywhere. Yeah. I think it doesn't matter what pristine or non-pristine environment you go to, you will find these bacteria. And the fact that they exist... Eh, everywhere as well as Antarctica is not this isn't it's interesting from a fundamental science point of view but from a human health point of view I agree with Emil I don't think this is, has I don't think this will have a huge impact on human health in the future I honestly think that this is a fairly cake paper pretty good paper but with a absolutely bullshit alarmistic <laughs> media take on it uh, and I don't know if that's the responsibility on the authors who put out a press release saying this, or if this is the take that the journalist has done it, but the media response to this is absolutely bullshit, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, we have in here su superpower bacteria. This is from, uh, let's see, Reuters. Um, Bacteria in Antarctica has been discovered with genes that give them natural antibiotic and antimicrobial resistance and had the potential to spread out of the polar regions. Yeah, because, I mean, the world is connected. That wouldn't be something that is unique to Antarctica. And also, Antarctica is like the least likely place where this would happen. So, on the scale, this is still not really concerning. Uh, and then they start talking about superpower bacteria. And let's see if they actually use the term uh, super, super bugs. No, they didn't in this, in this particular article. But 
I think that they are totally overselling the paper. Because what they find is, as Marcus was saying, scientifically interesting. Uh, I particularly think it's interesting with these unexplained resistance, phenotypic resistance patterns that they can't find a known resistance gene for. That's really interesting. But on the list of things to be concerned about, resistant bacteria in Antarctic soil is pretty far down my list. And I think that the way they're selling this is completely alarmistic. It just, it's set up to make people scared uh, in a way that I think is irresponsible for a scientist. If, I, mean, I don't know if that's the, sci the scientists who have been doing this take or if it's journalists, but in, in, regardless of who did it, I think it's irresponsible. I think I should just add that if you read the discussion section, I don't think it was alarmistic. No, no, not I the paper itself. I think it was very... Um, no, not at all the paper itself. No. I'm talking about the media yes. text now. Yes, but I think that you can give some journalists whatever... Um, uh, sometimes journalists has a, ten has, has a tendency to over-exaggerate things, and sometimes the scientist themselves doesn't write the press release. It's the um, uh, journalistic department or the communicator of the university which might write the press release. Uh, so I think we should, I don't think we should emphasize that the authors are overselling. I think we should say that someone is overselling this, the results of this article, being it the, the researchers or the communications department of the university or some journalists. Yes. I think we should, we should be careful, not just... Uh, we should emphasize that it might not be the, the scientists themselves. That might be true. It, the, the only reason I might the, to, my, to think that it might be that the, that the authors might have a part of that is that they are quoted with direct quotes in the text. It's for a good cause, right? Because, I mean, this is a problem that our generation will have to deal with. So, even though they are perhaps flaming up the findings of this paper and its irrelevance maybe it still has a place in order for us to see that this will become a problem I think that I mostly disagree but okay. please prove me wrong and the, re <laughs> the reason why, why is that I think it, it refocuses the issue on irrelevant things. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's like, sure. if, if you're going to regulate antibiotic resistance, if you're going to take any type of action, would you rather see people go to Antarctica and sort of try no. to fend this off and try to protect the research in Antarctica, or yeah. would you see people building sewage infrastructure in Central Africa? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like taking the attention away from where it might be needed. Yeah. But can you argue like that? Can you say that just because we have some important science, that means that we can't... I mean, that's basically saying, so climate change will have a bigger effect on human, on mankind than antibiotic resistance research, right? Mm -hmm. So should we then say that we should not do antibiotic resistance research because we need to do climate change research? I feel that's a similar argument. I... Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, actually, I mean, if, if you would have to prioritize... I think that, yes, I think I would support that. Um, but I also think that it's, it's also... <coughs> it's also about the relative magnitude of the problems, right? Uh, and the relative magnitude of the problem of antibiotic resistance in soils in Antarctica and 
uh, the antibiotic resistance in actual patients who are dying in hospitals, I mean, you, you see yourself that this is a different thing, right? I, I, I agree completely with, uh, let's say, the, the, the human relevancy of the research. I completely agree with you there and uh, the impact the research will have on human health. Mm -hmm. I completely agree, and I also agree when you talk about media space, that this article probably took more media space, in, in Sweden at least, than was um, merited. So I agree with you there. I'm just saying that I still think that fundamental research should be allowed to exist, even though we Oh yes, we have more. What we say, more questions which are have a, a higher impact on humans, and we should still be able to research both. Sure, but I mean, the, how do you put it? If if you were to think of this issue from a layperson, would you say it is cooler for someone to read about finding new bugs in the Antarctic versus that? Oh, we have found another huge issue of. Uh, antimicrobial resistance in uh, in sewage in a in a sewage treatment plant in london H how many very relevant research paper for human health do you think you could take to a layman person and they would say this is cool <laughs> <laughs> how many zero how many percent <laughs> But yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I also want to emphasize one thing. I don't think that this necessarily has to be about research funding. It, it's more about if you're going to um, if you're going to create public awareness hmm. about a problem and try to use that public awareness to drive implementation, then I don't think that Antarctica is the place to go. Uh, but in terms of research. I think it's good to not put all of your eggs in some, in one basket. I agree. Um, but but uh, in terms of implementation, you might have to do that because you have to prioritize hard. Um, research can be a lot more broad. I agree. So next up, we're going to move to a less pristine environment. Um, more specifically, we're going to talk mining and antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. So, please, Emil, can you tell us a little bit of what you learned about this? For sure, Johan. I can definitely talk a little bit about uh, about uh, mining uh, and uh, heavy metal contaminated uh, water. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about a paper published by J. et al. in 2022. Yep. Yes, good. <laughs> uh, called... Um, Globally distributed mining impacted environments are un underexplored hotspots for multi-drug resistance. And the authors of this paper, they talked, uh, well, as you've heard a lot over all of, all of our different podcasts so far. There's a little bit of an issue of antimicrobial resistance being, you know, spread uh, and, you know, how it that impact uh, both human health but also human gains in terms of like agriculture in terms of animal husbandry and a few other things like that as well however uh, there is uh, been a lot of focus trying to uh, put in uh, funding and uh, research on the actual um, uh, actual patient side but there are few hotspots that are still underexplored uh, the authors particularly say. And in particular, and I know that Johan will agree with this, is that the environment has been uh, has been hypothesized as a big source for these uh, antimicrobial resistance genes. And I, I think both Anna and Marcus would agree with this too. 
Uh, and in particular, there's also this hypothesis that heavy metals can co-select for antimicrobial resistance. So the authors try to connect all of these different hypotheses together in order to actually ask the questions, are waters that are contaminated with uh, heavy metals close to mines a source of antimicrobial resistance genes? So first and foremost they thought, well, you know, this is perhaps a little bit of an issue, easy thing to actually test. We just look at the different, uh, uh, at the different publications and we see uh, what, do, what do the actual literature say. So uh, they, they said that, okay, maybe there, it just isn't that much uh, publications about it, but maybe there are many metagenomes available that can be publicly scraped instead, so they can use that as a source. Uh, so they uh, went and checked out uh, some, uh, uh, some uh, publicly available metagenomes, uh, and they searched for the terms acid drainage metagenomes, mine water metagenome, and mine tailing metagenomes. And in total they found uh, 795 metagenomes uh, in total. They also wanted to supplement some of those metagenomes with some of their own supplied metagenomes as well. So they went out and sampled two mining sites individually alongside these 795 publicly available metagenomes. Just, just one thing here, isn't that like oddly specific terms to search for? The acid mine <laughs> drainage and mine, I mean it's like, <coughs> it's like we really, I, I, I mm. can't really see why you just didn't use like mine mm. and looked at everything you would get. Up I think it is but because that they were specifically interested in the water that is associated with uh, mines because they state a little bit that just having a, uh, let's say that you have a, um, a quarry site where you have exposed uh, limestone that limestone micro area itself will not have the a lot of these chemical properties that will induce uh, this selection for antimicrobial resistance. It's just not high enough concentration if you have a few dust particles swirling around. You need to have the actual, you know, high, high concentration stuff. So that's what yeah. I would guess uh, why they were interested in this specifically... Um, how do you put this? Highly specific terms that yeah. isn't just mine associated. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> overall, I think that they show, they show that they know what they're doing. It's just that I, I reacted on that. This is a very <laughs> specific set of terms. <laughs> so, but I guess they have the reasons. So they did their metagenomic screenings and they found that there were actually a lot of antimicrobial resistance uh, inside of this, both these publicly available uh, metagenomes, but also in. Uh, in uh, the, the two that they sampled uh, as well. So they pooled all of these metagenomes together and they found in total 28 uh, previously described ARGs and of particular concern they raise uh, a few classes of these, uh, of these antimicrobial resistance um, genes and they raise for example aminoglycosides, beta-lactamases and multidrug resistance and they state that in these metagenomes, multidrug resistance was by far the most abundant of all of the discovered um, uh, antimicrobial resistance genes in those particular metagenomes. Uh, they, they also stated that these ARGs were found in all of the different uh, metagenomes, 
except for three European minds, in which the authors of those papers, so not the authors of the of uh, the actual paper that we are currently discussing, stated that there was a huge issue actually extracting DNA from those uh, sites due to. Uh, First and foremost, very low microbial abundance. Uh, there was there was just wasn't a lot of microbes, but also uh, the heavy metals interfering with the DNA extractions themselves. So you couldn't really get a good uh, DNA separation with your DNA extraction kits. So that's what they said for these three that they didn't find these antimicrobial resistant genes from. They also did the comparison uh, by comparing these uh, metagenomes to uh, freshwater sediment metagenomes in order to have just like a, a comparison to see wh about what level is. Uh, what is the, as you, Marcus, in our little bit uh, of our previous talk, talked about this baseline. And they found that it was a statistically significant difference. Uh, there was a larger amount of args in these heavy, con uh, heavy metal contaminated soils in comparison to the sediments. And they also said that in comparison it was about as high and a little bit higher than untreated urban sewage, which tells us a little bit of how uh, highly selective they are for this particular uh, args as well. Uh, so they also so they they they, they did they did this metagenomes and say oh this is very interesting. Um, how is it about the mobile genetic elements? Is this something that is of particular interest here as well? Is it just that uh, this is uh, um, how do you say it, species um, and individually locked uh, arcs, or is, is this actually something that can move? Uh, and they did some analysis and bioinformatics and discovered that uh, yeah, oh yeah a lot of these multi-drug resistance uh, genes are mobile genetically elementally linked as well uh, so not only are uh, these uh, arts and multi-drug resistance genes uh, very abundant in these soils, they're also genetically connected to mobile genetic elements, which could explain why it is so high abundance in this relatively smallish environment, because if it's so untouched for so long and it is just spreading to every taxa all over, that would explain why it is so high, so high uh, abundant. Um, so in order to, um, how do you put it, uh, summarize a little bit of what the author says, is that it appears that these uh, contaminated environments really select for um, multidrug resistance, uh, but also not only that they are selective for multidrug resistance, but they also mobilize them onto mobile genetic elements as well. However, the authors also state that uh, it is not uh, that the resistance genes are specifically only located on multidrug resistance. The most of these args are still chromosomally linked. It's just comparatively to, uh, for example, urban, uh, untreated urban sewage, uh, there is a higher abund relative abundance of args that are located onto a mobile genetic element compared to 
are contaminated soil. There is a lot of heavy metal ions that are floating around in these different water environments, right? Um, and they could it could just be the case that these bacteria that reside within this, uh, these contaminated uh, waters heavily invest in efflux pumps. Uh, and if they have a lot of efflux pumps, you know, already not only, you know, synthesized, but also actively, you know, working, it's easier to just pump out whatever antibiotic is being examined as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, the tricky part about that is that, I mean, part of me agrees with that. And part of me sort of at the same time, or I, at the same time, I can't help to wonder a little bit, isn't like a metal ion and an antibiotic fairly different sizes? Wouldn't it be completely different pumps that would be acting on these? Hmm. Um, and I, I mean, it, 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 it's basically that metal toxicity and metal detoxification, I guess is fairly complicated and I don't know enough hmm. about it to specifically point to that yeah this can absolutely be the same pump or no it's absolutely cannot but part of me sort of wonders isn't this kind of different molecules i mean oh, yes okay. but cross resistance is the thing right mm -hmm. yeah but so but cross resistance metals versus antibiotics yeah yeah isn't that one of the reasons why the, the paint that they have on boats right uh, the anti-fouling paint it contains heavy metals in order to stop um, particles, Bar particles, <laughs> to to latch on, right? And one re and and <clears throat> the way this paint works is that they, it starts to sort of fall off gradually. So you have sort of a very active site filled with heavy metals. And uh, didn't Carl Friedrich do research on this when he he investigated if this anti-fouling paint, which contains heavy metals, can cross-select for antibiotic resistance? Because as you say, I mean, you just Pump things. Well, I, I, I'm not sure he ever found anything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, thing is, the thing is that, I mean, there's one thing about co-resistance, where you have something that is just located next to an antibiotic resistance gene and you have selection, but then cross-resistance, that essentially you have the same pump doing both. And I'm not at all going to say that that's impossible, but it just feels to me that a lot of the antibiotics are fairly big molecules in comparison to metal ions. Uh, on the other hand, what I know is that Sometimes you have these metal ions um, chelated by something and then exported. So yeah. absolutely not impossible. Just that it sort of that. Let's put it this way instead. I would actually have liked the authors to write something on this mm. because it would have enlightened me mm. as a reader. <laughs> if I say put it that way, I'm not going to put go out on a limb and say I know anything about it because I don't really. I found a relevant uh, review article. Metal resistance and its association with antibiotic resistance. We'll have to read that afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's really your task for next podcast, and you can come back. <laughs> but I know that, uh, and I don't know if you if you uh, dived deep into this, that they have this sort of. They looked at antibiotic uh, resistance gene and mobile resistance genes nearest distance and the distance between antibiotic resistance genes and heavy metal resistance. Genes. So then. Uh, I guess that ties on to what U1 was discussing, that perhaps there wasn't cross-selection, mm. uh, but perhaps just mobile genetic elements and antibiotic genes yeah. are close to each other. But then the, I guess, why would that be? Uh, so, but I don't know, I did not dive deep into this. Did you? 
I mean, the, the one thing that you can say about this thing is that this in a given environment, in it, and you don't give them evolutionary time, you will still get snap points of uh, of individuals carrying both of these fragments, even though not both are selected uh, for. Uh, so if it is the case that a mobile genetic element will mobilize both the antibiotic resistance and the uh, the heavy metal onto the same ele- onto the same element, then it might just be the case that uh, it's an evolutionary snap point. Uh, it would be cool if this was some other strange, just by random chance, this gene. <laughs> You know, it's a, I don't know, a glycoprotein or whatever, some completely irrelevant thing for <laughs> digesting lactose or whatever. This is rich. Let's write to the authors and say this. Did you yeah. find anything of completely yeah. relevance to your paper? Did, did the reviewer point this out? <laughs> Just to see that it's not antibiotic resistance genes from mm, I, I think, to be honest, I think that they're doing a lot of things really well in this paper. I mean, there's always things you can sort of bash on in the details but yeah. I mean look, looking for example at the very first comparison they do and this again in contrast to the Antarctic paper we just talked about I mean what they're doing here is that they contextualize the results they take their mine waste metagenomes and they compare those to a, si- a similar number of uh, untreated sewage metagenomes and some freshwater sediment metagenomes and they look at what is the overall abundance? And they, come, and they come up with that the overall abundance of resistance gene is the same. And the good thing about this is also that since they do this, it doesn't really matter that they use a, for me, kind of non-intuitive measure of org abundance. Mm. Because they compare to something I know about, and I can sort of still relate the numbers. Mm. So it doesn't really matter that they have their... I shouldn't say it's their own one, but I think it's kind of unusual to have coverage by Gigabase uh, as an abundance of antibiotic resistance genes. Um, But what's interesting is that when they compare to the diversity of resistance genes, you're down again to the same level as in freshwater sediments. So basically what you have here is not like an enrichment of human type antibiotic resistance genes, it's an enrichment of some other kind of resistance genes. And I think that's interesting. I think this is the the benefit of doing this comparison to other metagenomes is that they can really show that something else is going on here. Mm. And that's corroborated even more when they do this comparison to the to human fecal markers, the crass phage and this other mm, phage, yeah. which I don't remember exactly which one it was. Um, and they can see that you don't have a strong correlation between the abundance of the crass phage and the amount of antibiotic resistance genes in these samples, which is the case in many, many other environments. I mean, Antti Karikman showed that a couple of years ago, that you could, in most cases, explain the antibiotic resistance gene abundances by the crass phage as a marker of fecal pollution. That's something you can't do in these mining environments, and that's also really interesting. And So I think they do a lot of smart things to contextualize these findings, which I really like in this paper. The, the other thing that I think is interesting is the when they start comparing the um, geographical distributions of these uh, sites and how that affects the compositions. Uh, and, I mean, they do find some kind of distance decay relationship so that closer sites are more similar uh, than sites that are further away. But I f- feel like that connection is fairly faint. 
Um, but I wonder though, if you look at the global uh, samples that they took, then they cluster very nicely according to geography. But one thing that I wonder there, which I think is really hard to disentangle using the data they have, is like how much of this separation is actually driven by different taxonomy of the samples, how much is driven by the environments in the same area of the world might actually be a little bit more similar in terms of environmental conditions, and how much of this is actually distance and ge geography. Um, and I guess it's something that would be super hard to disentangle, but it is kind of interesting because they sort of attribute that broadly to geography, and I wonder if it's not other factors yeah. being sort of hidden in that. Yeah, I mean, geography is also like a super broad thing, right? I mean, it can encompass so many bio, like just bio, not biochemical, but like how much humidity is it, for example, in that particular soil that they, or in that particular environment that they are? What's the temperature? What's the what's the sun exposure? What's the... everything like that, right? It will be affected. And if you just look for mine, and whatever they say, mine, acidic mine of water, or whatever was the term that they used, the, I can imagine that the data sets are messy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think they mentioned it somewhere here. It could also be different extraction methods, different, I yeah, mean, yeah. it's it's not super easy. Mm. So in comparison now, I mean, we had the discussion about relevance, uh, about the Antarctic paper. What do we think about the relevance here? I mean, basically they are arguing for that uh, mining environments are as important hotspots of antibiotic resistance as sewages. Do we agree on that? I think there are two similarities, because Sewage is, we have a liquid which contains antibiotic resistance genes and many other things which we pump out into the environment. And these mines are, if you abandon a mine, it will constantly fill up with water, right? So you will have to pump out the water into the environment or something like that. So, we're sort of, so this could be a constant uh, um, uh, efflux of resistant bacteria into the environment, whatever envir environment that is. Uh, so is it as big? Uh, it's not, if you look at volume, volume water pumped out in the environment, it is pretty small in relation to sewage treatment plant, but it's still sort of very similar, mm -hmm. I would say. So, two things, I guess. First and foremost, I mean, I, I want to sort of maybe continue a little bit on that point that you said that uh, about the water. I, d I know very little about mining, mining, how do you say, restoration after abandonment. So, but it, is it the case that the mines are like continuously filled and always contaminated? Because, I mean, there has to be an end to the heavy metals that are in a mine eventually, right? As long as there are humans, we will not, not need uh, uh, sewage treatment plants. Like, we will always need sewage treatment. Wait, wait. <laughs> I did not understand your comparison at all. <laughs> so, so... I mean, from what I understood from Marcus, is that if we are going to use, or since we are mining, we can imagine that these mines are like a continuous source of uh, antibiotic resistance genes because of the water that fills up that we constantly need to uh, deal with. Uh, but mines will eventually run out of heavy metals, right? If it's filled for the 10,000th time, it will not be as much heavy metals compared to 
the first yeah, time. but I mean, it's it's also like a lot of this is like waste products and things that I, I I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, basically, I think what you're saying is that you would sort of like slowly lower the concentration yeah, exactly. by diffusion, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I I feel like it, that would take so long time, so that it's probably not an, an appreciable time scale that would be relevant in terms of resistance management. Mm. I mean, I, I think this would still be relevant from a resistance management point of view, even if it fades eventually. Mm, okay, okay. I think you can also look about, I mean, we have a problem in sewage soils with cadmium uh, contamination, other heavy metals, and we've been, we've been using these soils for thousands of years, right? Some of these soils at least. Uh, and they st- there's, and th- there is still a problem with a lot of heavy metals in our soils. Uh, so I, st- I, st- I think I agree with you on that this this will continue for a while. <clears throat> the bigger question is really <laughs> where on the scale from sewage treatment yeah. to protecting researchers in Antarctica does this fall on relevance? Closer to the sewage end, I would say. But I think it would ha- you would have to look at how many mines are currently in operation or or abandoned, I guess, mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, I would have to think that there are more sewage treatment plants than there are mines. Yeah. But maybe that's not true, actually. I tend, I tend to think that this is a problem that is... It's a little bit reminiscent of the... Uh, pharmaceutical production problem that I've been working a lot with like you yes you have a larger number of uh, resistance genes and resistant bacteria being emitted from humans and animals and from sewage treatment plants that's on a global scale a much bigger problem there's also probably so so that if you want to really do an efficient intervention against resistance you should do it on like human or uh, even better agricultural animal use of antibiotics um, rather than going after the uh, pharmaceutical pollution the thing with the pharmaceutical pollution is that it's an easy one to target because there's a relatively small number of places where you have this problem. I mean, you don't produce antibiotics in as many places as people poo. Yeah. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's it's a fairly... In that sense, it's a manageable problem. It's also... You get a lot of concentrations of antibiotics in one place instead of, like, <laughs> literal shitloads uh, spread out in a lot of different places. So, in a sense, it's like a, like a low-hanging fruit. This yeah. is something that is easy to address. There's not a lot of ethics con- connected to it. Um and I think the mining the mining problem that you present here is in a sense a little bit similar it's you have localized hotspots which you could fairly easily locate I mean you would know where the mines are and you could take a look at okay if we look at the surrounding area around this mine do we seem to have an enrichment of resistance then you can make the, you can take targeted action. Hmm. So in that sense, I, I don't think this is the most important problem, but it's a manageable problem. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, it might actually warranted, warrant actions because it is manageable. Hmm. So what actions would be appropriate to take in this case? I mean, how would you deal with these args? Because you can't just, you know, burn the wall, or maybe you can, I don't know. I... I, I it, I bet it would have to depend on how the mine mm. looks. Yeah, if it's like heavy, like toxic metals. Yeah, and stuff like yeah, that. but also if it's if it's sort of like 
is there a way to sort of make sure that the uh, drainage from this mine is not going into drinking water, for example? Mm. Um, I mean, it would have to be those kind of measures, right? Mm. Because I, I don't think that you can, in a conceivable way, just take the metals away. <laughs> I mean that's sort of gold with mining though, but it's. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anyone knows here. I mean, if you have a contaminated water, let's say in Germany, I, I assume the the environmental laws prevents them from just taking this contaminated water and dumping it in a lake or something. I, would I assume guess so. they have to do something with it already. I mean, I know that there are certain steps that, like, you need to run. I know that uh, for heavy. I think for heavy metal <laughs> contaminated waters that you just run them through active charcoal and then almost everything is just bound up by the charcoal and you can burn that. Does that burn bacteria as well? I doubt it. <laughs> well, well, I mean, bacteria will to a large extent also get stuck in active charcoal, right? Wouldn't it? Why wouldn't I don't they? actually know. If I'm completely honest, I don't know. If, if they do, <laughs> then this is not a problem. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if they don't, then this is the problem. We we have to look into this. I also, I, yeah, but then then again, comes the question: Is this a big problem? I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't warrant. Uh, yeah. I think I think again. This paper, and I think that's actually what the authors call for. They don't really call for immediate action. They call for more research into what happens with resistance yeah. in mine environments, which is exactly what I would also... <laughs> I, I would sign that document as well. I mean, yeah, this actually looks interesting. It's something we should look a little bit closer at. Yeah. But it's probably not on its own, this single paper, uh, warranting swift action to close down all mines in the world. There's actually one experiment that I think that would be kind of interesting because the authors mentioned in the introduction uh, of this paper that uh, there are a few different ways to quantify uh, uh, ARGs in these various novel environments. And they choose to use metagenomics in this example, but I know that this is something that you and I have also talked about. They also talk about culturing and QPCR. Uh, and uh, that would be interesting to see as well, right? If they could confirm these findings using additional means as well uh, but then of course that would mean that they would have to get more funding to do this uh, this sort of uh, experiments but I think that would be interesting yeah I mean compared to a lot of other places people have proposed as hot spots in quotation marks for antibiotic resistance I mean this actually looks like it is a hot spot yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's a, a lot of these places that are being proposed is basically like we Propose that this is a hotspot because this is an environment we are looking at. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, here I'm, I'm willing to agree that this is an underappreciated risk. Hmm? Not at the same level as antibiotics in agriculture or antibiotics using humans, but still worth taking a look at. For sure. So that was a great starting, uh, or a great uh, warm-up for the EDAR conference coming up in um, about two weeks from, from when we record this. So, unfortunately, I don't think that any of these papers will have their authors presenting at EDAR. Uh, but I know that Jung Wansu, who was last at the mining paper, is coming to talk about antibiotic resistance in the plastic, plastic, plastic sphere. So, basically, antibiotic resistance genes, or probably antibiotic resistant bacteria on microplastics. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. 
So Emil, then let's talk about uh, what are you going to present uh, on EDAR? Super quick. Yeah, super quick. So uh, I'm going to look at uh, some uh, some determinants of antimicrobial tolerance in uh, environmentally associated bacteria. Which bacteria? Cetimomas aeruginosa. So that's actually one of the bacteria that was yes. mentioned in both of these papers as a uh, as an opportunistic pathogen that was relevant to uh, to these two environments that we just discussed. Yes. Anna, you're also presenting, right? Yeah, I'm going to have a poster. And what is your poster on? Um, I will be focusing mostly on the methodological part. So uh, if you would like to know uh, whether your antibiotic resistance genes are mobilized or not, you would like to assemble uh, your sequencing data, let's say. And uh, we are looking into comparing different types of tools and their performance in order to reconstruct genomic context surrounding antibiotic resistant genes. So come by and have a look at my poster. And uh, I mean, we were almost all of us here today, not you, Agata, unfortunately, but the rest of us were at the ISMI conference in August. And you presented uh, another version of this work there, right? Uh, was there like a lot of a lot of interest in this work because you have already presented a previous version of it? Yeah, there were, was a lot of interest because I think everyone who deals with assembling metagenomic data faces the same problem, either it's um, uh, efficiency or accuracy. So you have to choose between those two and currently there is no perfect solution which would serve all. Um, yeah. Yeah. All, all I guess that's the major outcome, right? I yeah. mean, we don't really find the perfect solution here. You're also presenting, right, Marcus? Yes, I'm also presenting a poster. And what your what is your poster going to be about? It's going to be about if um, antibiotic contamination in soil due to agriculture can select for antibiotic resistance in the soil microbiome using a metagenomic approach. So is this something that you have presented on previously as well? Yes, I presented it on the ISME conference. And I don't have any new data, but I will slightly change the poster. So it will feel, it feel, it will feel a bit fresh. A cool. Bit. <laughs> so what, what, was there, what was the questions you got on ISME? Well, there were some uh, methodological questions. How do we do this? How do we do that? And some people who just weren't really um, aware that there was antibiotic um, contamination in certain agricultural soils. Because this was a very large conference, not just antimicrobial resistance in the environment, but mostly focused on microbial ecology. So I thought that was very interesting to, mm -hmm. to discuss this topic with people who perhaps were not very familiar with it. Uh, I think we are all now pumped for the EDAR conference in a couple of days. Um, and we will record again in October. So thanks for a great discussion today, uh, Marcus, Agatha, Anna, Miriam and Emin. Uh, today we have talked about how antibiotic resistance in the environment can uh, spread and potentially be a risk or not be a risk and uh, what, a, what a pristine environment really is. And I don't think that we are that much closer to the truth because this is going to be a never-ending discussion basically.
before we end, I just want to say that this poll was hosted by the Bengtsson Palma Lab at the Chalmers University of Technology. And if you have any questions or comments about the content of the pod, please send us a message on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter, I, no, Twitter handle is at Bengtsson Palma as one single word. Or you can send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. Thank you for listening.